Attention all personnel. Incoming podcast. This is MASH Matters. Hello, I'm Justin Muller. I'm calling from Missouri. And I'm a big MASH fan, have been my entire life. I was wondering, I'm sure there are plans to have uh, Loretta Swit interview, if you could. It would really be interesting to uh, hear an interview with Loretta Swit sometime. Thanks, guys, for this podcast. It's really wonderful. That's a pretty good idea, Jeff. What do you think? Not a bad idea. Loretta Swit, she was on MASH. We're doing a podcast about MASH. Maybe we should do it. Justin, thank you. What a good idea. Thank you, Justin. Because of you, we are going to interview Loretta Swit. In fact, we're going to do it right now. Anything that we do not remember or know, Loretta, uh, Ryan does. So <laughs> if there's if there's something we go, what happened? What did then when episode ninety four? Ryan will tell us exactly what it is. He's that. Good. Oh my word, Ryan! Yeah. You have to get a life. God. I know, right? <laughs> it was either get a life or start a podcast, and I chose to do this instead. So. <laughs> uh, I think you you chose wisely. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if anybody can't tell, uh, this is MASH Matters, and we are talking to the incredibly talented, gifted, beautiful Loretta Swit. And so, welcome to MASH Matters, Loretta Swit. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I feel quite at home. Uh, obviously, Jeff, you, you and I know uh, the great pleasure we have talking about our days on that incredible experience. You know, it just... Uh, <laughs> How do you, uh, you had to be there, but we try our best to um, talk about it and share the uh, brilliance with people. That it was every day was like a, a brilliant gemstone. It was just, there was always something wonderful happening. And uh, our cast and crew were just phenomenal, all of them great at what they did. And I could talk about MASH ad infinitum. Uh, funny thing happened to me today. I was in the bank. And this lady stopped me and she said, aren't you Loretta Alda? And she got us too con she got us confused. I cracked up. I, I didn't want to embarrass her, but I just couldn't. I said, I can't wait to tell Alan. Oh, yeah. I said, you're kind of all right, but not quite. It, it, you're half right. Yes, yes, I'm Loretta, who worked with Alda. <laughs> But not related, you know, and I, but I was, she started to laugh and the two of us are in the bank hacking away, <laughs> laughing. But uh, <laughs> that's great. I love that. That's hysterical. So, so I, I get to the counter and there's a new girl who, by her training, has to ask me for ID, which always makes me laugh because, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, usually they ask for an autograph, not an ID. So I started to laugh and I said, I can give you a reference. So I bring over this lady who, who's still laughing. <laughs> Don't you recognize me? I'm Loretta Alda. Yes, <laughs> right. I really, I cannot wait to share that with Alan. You know, you bring that up. I, I have to ask, I think people are fascinated by people who have been on television shows and we were all on, well, two of us anyway, were on an incredibly mm. uh, iconic mm. television show. I know what it's like to be Jeff Maxwell, 
It's all right. I mean, it's okay. <laughs> Some days are better than others. Uh, you were certainly oh an iconic character. What is it, you know, what's a day in the life? What happens? Does that kind of thing from uh, about the MASH situation get tiresome or, or is it fun or what is it like day to day? I'll tell you something. I'm going to just give you an idea of something that happened today. This came over on social media. This is from a gentleman who says, after he watched the making of MASH, he became a stage actor later in life after being a volunteer theater tech for years. And now I know, he writes, I know firsthand how writers' words are brought to life to audiences through the patient and grueling efforts of cast and crew. I now view all television and film through that lens. I cannot stress enough how important MASH was to me. Mark's brothers level slapstick with you as straight man and comedic foil. The time capsule episode you so ruled, and perhaps best of all, your speech in the nurse's tent where your character breaks down and confesses how left out she feels. That scene made me identify not just with your character's isolation, but at the same time the nurses who had slighted her. It made me want to behave better at school. Perhaps I was 11 years old at the time. And later in life, yeah, this, this is what blows me away. Later in life, towards others who might seem difficult to understand and empathize with them. Mm. Uh, Match continues to astonish me with its moral lessons that a child of 11, mm. yeah, I mean, it, it did so much good without trying, mm -hmm. just like delivering honest performances and the writers, of course, pulling every every ounce of talent they had, pulling that and writing these wonderful scripts for us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, of course, the ensemble never fails to astonish me because it began with five people, most of whom are gone. And we were blessed with the people who came in who formed another rich, incredible ensemble. We, we lose Mac and we get Harry Morgan. Hello. Mm -hmm. we, we lose Wayne and we get Mike. Uh, we, we lose Gary and, and Jamie takes over as company clerk. And there's a whole new side of Max Klinger. Mm -hmm. it, I mean, I can go on and on. But th that the point is, uh, I guess David is always on my mind. I still miss him. And to inject us with this pearl of, of a performer, you know, this, this wonderful guy who doesn't speak that way. I mean, I know there are people out there who think David is from Boston, was from Boston and did speak that way. <laughs> it was, it was magic. You know, when you reflect page by page what happened to what started out to be a quote, I hate this word, sitcom, mm -hmm. sitcom. I guess it means situation comedy. Mm -hmm. Our situation, however, being as close to the front and patching bodies together, couldn't always be calm in the sitcom. And fortunately, we had eventually the total cooperation with the network and the studio to start telling the truth about how unfunny that situation was. So it was a sitcom drama. It was a sitcom com, or you know, it just <laughs> it made up its own rules mm -hmm. and became a genre of its own. Mash was mash. It didn't fit anywhere. You know, it was mash. 
Right. It was sort of like, I remember once hearing about the great voices on Broadway, and this man was critic, I guess, saying there were no no really great uh, operatic-sounding voices. And, and then he stopped and he said, well, no, there is George Hearn. And I was very taken with that um, e- e- expression. For, he was totally right about George. Uh, and People were starting to say, I don't watch television. I accept, of course, MASH, but, but MASH is not television. That's, that was their, their yeah, that was their yeah. concept. Yeah. That was yeah. their concept. And the people who didn't watch television, they watched MASH in 60 minutes, or they watched MASH and mm-hmm. um, uh, All in the Family, or mm-hmm. a MASH mm-hmm. and Mary Tyler. But they were, th- these were people who were learning something. They were not only getting entertained, they were getting a lot more. And then I, I tell you that what I just read to you is not the exception. Those are the kind of letters we all get. I mean, Jamie just sent around uh, a lovely, lovely letter of congrats and, you know, and <laughs> to add to the mix, do you know how many years ago this was? Yeah. I mean, what, anniversaries? Well, it's over 40 years. I, I forget the 43, whatever. That doesn't matter. It's a long time ago. It's a long time ago. Mm-hmm. What happened was it became such a family show that this 11-year-old is probably now married with kids, and the kids are probably watching the show. And when those kids grow up, their kids are going to be watching the show because it's like a legacy that is passed on from family to family. Oh, I want you to see this, honey. Come over here. Watch this show. I took your mother out that night. Uh, we had our first date, and I said, you've got to watch this show. And we watched this show, and she loved it, and you know, we got married. And so there's this, this story this association connected to us. MASH became everybody's family. Mm-hmm. And there, I get I, I, one touching letter I got from a woman who became a nurse because of Margaret Houlihan. Mm-hmm. And she went on to tell me about her childhood growing up with me. She was alone. She was alone. She was the only child. And her mother had to hold down two jobs because the father left. And the mother under such stress, became alcoholic. So she was really alone. And she said, I turned to you. You became, this really chokes me up, you became my big sister. Wow. And I wanted to become like you, and I became a nurse. And I'm a nurse now, and I'm married happily with kids, and we all watch MASH. So, you know, you you can't be exposed to that on a daily basis and not be moved by the magic of what that show created. It's true. And we get so many, uh, you know, emails sent to us telling us those same kinds of stories about how how deeply uh, MASH moved them and how kids grew up with their parents and watching the show. And it affected their lives. Affected their lives. That's why, you know, MASH Matters is here because MASH mattered then and it matters now. It's it's astonishing. It really is. I mean, Mm -hmm. like you don't hear a lot of people say, my two favorite shows, MASH and My Mother the Car. It just that doesn't kind of, that doesn't really, I don't hear that a lot. No. And so <laughs> there is a level of appreciation by a, a lot of folks whose lives were changed by this television show. I mean, it, after all, it was a television show. But it, it had such an impact. I think I think just to keep the sequence a little closer, <laughs> I think me and the chimp would work better than my <laughs> mother the car. But you know, you know, 
But, you know, <laughs> I, I have to say this, those shows that you would dismiss because of the lack of depth or whatever, were so entertaining yes. to an audience, different perhaps from ours. It doesn't matter. The, the point is, um, I, I remember listening to, I, I think it was Mike Connors. You remember Mike? He, he was Mannix. Mannix, yes. Yeah, and he said, uh, people will compare my shows with like Green Acres or something like that. And I, he said, I really resent it. And I'll tell you why. I'm just as, um, not, I don't know what word he really used, but it had to do with believability. He said, I look at Joe Mannix every week getting away with, gee, I mean, there's no way that detective would survive for years <laughs> <laughs> with people trying to shoot him or kill him or what he said, and, you know, like he said, it's as unrealistic in its way as a Green Acres or, a, you know, and so I, he was very, well, this is a gentle soul and with insight, he was very protective of those comedies that were strictly for laughs or or even the dramas that were trying but didn't quite make it or whatever he he found that element of pleasing some portion of the audience and that's what was important he was one in a million lovely man uh, i uh, i don't want to change the subject from mash but i do want to just uh, switch uh gears for a second here. And I want to talk briefly, well, not too briefly, but about your book. Oh, yeah. Oh, thanks. Yes. Let's do. <laughs> yes. Let's talk about the book. <laughs> First of all, it's called Sweetheart, and it is a collection of your beautiful watercolor paintings. And I just Ooh. want to read something here really quickly. It says, this book is dedicated to the enjoyment, protection, and well-being of all animals, as well as the preservation of wildlife and their natural habitats globally. It is said that you can judge the character of a person by the way they treat animals. Herein lies the work of a true champion of the animal kingdom. And of course, they're talking about you. That's so lovely. That was really the beautiful prose. It, it is. And, and, it, and it's so true. Uh, I've certainly experienced that in my own life. And I've known people who treat animals poorly and they treat people poorly. Yeah. Well, we're all animals. I mean, I think yep. uh, I've done research for different like roles, cops, um, police women, detectives, and so forth. And um, when we were at, um, I forget what, what campaign it was, but I, I was uh, speaking and I had facts and numbers to prove that serial killers begin very early in their lives and they start with animals. Mm -hmm. They start crushing things, killing things, yeah, making them feel important. And this is, of course, this is affecting their whole persona, their brain and so forth. But they graduate to babies and abuse and they become killers. And it, this is a segue that has been proven. Every serial killer that they have profiled uh, had that history. So basically, we are all animals and we are the, when when I talk about abusing an animal, I, I, it's the same way I would feel about a husband abusing his wife or abusing their pet or their child. And this does exist. And um, it's wonderful that I feel people who are determined to end that far outnumber those who would persist in cruelty. Well, I think your, your beautiful book... I think helps that because it illustrates how beautiful these animals are, 
and you did a magnificent job. The paintings mm. are beautiful. Thank you. I certainly recommend that everybody go out and buy the book. And this isn't just a, oh gosh, we're going to sell a book here. This comes from my heart. This is, this is passionate. I'm a supporter and I love the artwork and I love the book. And I looked at uh, obviously all your paintings and read what you wrote about each painting. I encourage everybody to do that because as I read them, I cried. Oh, <laughs> Tears came to my eyes. That's lovely, Jeff. They really did. I'm, I'm not just kind of saying that. It really did. It's a magnificent book and everybody should, should get this. They can order a copy or get a copy uh, online at sweetheart.org. S-W-I-T, capital H-E-A-R-T dot org. Uh, that's how to get a book. Now, at the end of the book, towards the end of the book, uh, we need to tell your MASH fans, because MASH matters so deeply to me, uh, there is that that wonderful tableau of the leads, the, the featured players, that was presented to us as a big surprise. We didn't pose for this painting. And I uh, wanted to put it in the book, and the publisher didn't want it because I didn't paint it. And I said, that's absurd. This is an art book. It's about animals and life, and it's a little bit about me and my relation to all of that. This is a beautiful opportunity for me to write an homage to my family. So, um, uh, so I did. And if you would, go to that page, can you? It's titled The Miracle of Mash, actually. Yeah. Uh, so that people who are interested in the book uh, and who are MASH uh, fans, fan, fan addicts, they can know that that's also in the book. Would you read what I say about y'all? I have to get glasses, otherwise I can't see. <laughs> oh, well, why should you be different? <laughs> <laughs> okay, just so I don't say the wrong thing, how do you pronounce Bernie's last name? <laughs> Fuchs. Bernie Fuchs. He, he passed away uh, recently, oh, too. Uh, yeah. This litho of the MASH Ensemble is a lovely work of art by Bernie Fuchs, presented to us by CBS Fox for our 10th anniversary in primetime, and it gives me the perfect opportunity to write about the family so dear to my heart. My MASH family is made up of extraordinary people, with their blazing talent and ability to care so deeply for the integrity of the show and for each other. From day one, the love and respect reach far beyond stage nine, and as we grew together, we grew up together. We fused a close bond that continues today, spanning all those years and weathering all our painful losses. It was kind of a miracle in a way, the synchronicity of these particular people brought together at that time, in that place, and being so in tune with one another. What a blessing to have been part of that family. Beautiful. Isn't that sweet? And that's true. Uh, and, you know, you say the, the, the words grew up. I, I grew up. I showed up at that show as a whack, gooky guy out of, uh, you know, mm -hmm. nightclubs running around like a crazy person. <laughs> Did not know any of the cast. Was not a television watcher per se. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I was there out at the Fox Ranch. <laughs> it was at six o'clock in the morning. I was freezing cold. There was a guy named George Batchelor. <laughs> screaming at me to go put my pants on. I went, well, where, where am I? What is this? And there was bee smoke and people running around and horrible noises and smells. I just wanted to go home. I didn't know what I was doing. But nine years later, and I was associated for nine years, I'd grown up. I, I really grew up there. 
So it was. For sure, uh, you did. Yeah, we, we all did. There was so much growth going on yes. at that. I always say this, and I people probably get sick of hearing me say this, but it was such a miracle and so amazing to have that experience in in, in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think about it all the time. And uh, Ryan, especially. Uh, won't let me forget it. He constantly <laughs> talks about it. <laughs> but we have a great time with it. And uh, we love doing this podcast. We love talking about the show and, mm-hmm. and hearing your experience is phenomenal as well. So anyway, everybody should go out and get this book, uh, not just yeah. to sell books, but I know a lot of the proceeds go to, to your yeah, causes. They, yeah. The proceeds go into Sweetheart Animal Alliance. Yep. All of that goes to the betterment of the lives of animals and therefore our lives as well. When did you go from, uh, you're, you're an actress, you've learned that craft beautifully. At what, what point were you an actress and a painter or when did you start doing one over the other or at the same time? Were you? It's in the book. Uh, actually, I talk about it at some point that I've been doing this since I'm six. Uh, I always loved to doodle and sketch and, you know, paint, whatever. When I was a kid, I'd do posters for school or I'd draw my own greeting cards or, you know, whatever. The reason I remember I was only six is because my mom talked about this. There was a contest I read in probably a comic book or something. But anyway, they had this little drawing and they said, if you can draw this, uh, submit it. There's, you know, you're going to win a prize or whatever. It was like very childish and cute. So I begged my mother to mail in my drawing, and I won. And so she talked about that. She said, you were only six, and you won your first art prize, you know? <laughs> I remember what it was. It was adorable. But, but anyway, I've been doing it all my life. I did sketches of the original cast uh, in the first season, maybe the second season. I matted the paintings with uh, fatigue green, you know, that uh, terrible drab, uh, olive drab. And the frame as well was like a green. That was the color of the liver, I think, actually, wasn't it? Yeah, (laughs) it was. It was. Everything was that color in the mess tent. You had this, this tent radiating that color onto you. So my hair in some shots looked green. (laughs) (laughs) And so, again, these thinking writers and jokesters, and they go, why don't we do a red show? You remember our red show? Mm -hmm. Gosh. um, Well, certainly Ryan does. I (laughs) I do. (laughs) Uh, Ryan does. I, I wore a red wig. Harry looked like a leprechaun. He had a red rinse in his hair. <laughs> it was wonderful. We were just all so, it was so tedious and boring and terrible to be surrounded by this color that, by the way, the color was chosen specifically to be unattractive. I mean, you had enough problems with the two sexes at the front. I mean, issues, not problems, but, you know, and, and so uh, that color, I think it's, it's the color of saltpeter, you know, (laughs) it did everything it could to turn off any flame of romance. (laughs) 
You know, it was impossible to look well. Wait a minute. Let me go get my jar of salt, Peter. I just want to make sure you're accurate. Yeah, you're right. And in the fashion world, I learned they considered it one of singularly the most difficult color to use or wear. You know, and I said, yep, that's it. That's the color. (laughs) Impossible green, whatever. Impossible green. Impossible green. Impossible. They tried tried passing it off with prettier names like Loden. <laughs> Loden Green? Loden, Loden oh. Green, yeah. It just doesn't work. You have to brighten it up with a hot pink or something. <laughs> and of course, of course, you weren't allowed to do that. The nurses I talked to who had been there said you weren't allowed to wear a bangle bracelet. You, you couldn't, you, you no know, makeup, your hair had to be drawn back and, you know, um, and, and uh, you know, I would always wear mine up and my my then agent called it my bagel, that little thing on top of my hair. He said, I love when you wear that bagel thing. <laughs> a bagel. She's wearing a bagel. <laughs> so, Loretta, mm-hmm. we put the call out on social media, which, by the way, you are very heavily involved on social media, we know. Yes. Uh-huh. And... We put the call out for questions. So we said we were going to be talking to you. What questions do you have? Oh, great. And I'll tell you, if we took the time to read every single question that came in, this would be a 17-hour long podcast episode. I mean, if you're available, we can give it a shot. But I don't care. You have to know this because you are uh, out in the public so often with your book and you're on social media. People absolutely adore you. And we had so many questions that came in. We have just picked a few that we're going to sprinkle in here and there, if that's okay with you. Sure. One of the questions came to us from Janae Simmons, and she asked, what women in your life did you draw from when portraying Margaret? Things about their character, attitude, demeanor, what made you think to put a little bit of them into Major Houlihan? I would have to say she had a lot of my mother in her. Uh, which is why after the episode of The Nurses, where I revealed how lonely I was, my mother telephoned me after the uh, broadcast, and she was still crying. Mm. Mm. And she'd never been able to tell me as succinctly about her reaction to me on stage or anywhere. I mean, just, um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll have to backpedal and tell you how, how, how much against my having a career she was. But she also had this thing about not calling it ch- her children. The children must call her. Uh, she couldn't dial the phone. <laughs> I mean, she would not call her kids. They had to call her. So, so number one, she made the call. Number two, she's still sniffling. And she tells me, she said, suddenly I was looking at somebody else. It was not my daughter. It was this brave, lonely woman who finally was able to tell her nurses that she was hurting. And I'm sure she was identifying strongly. I think my mom was very lonely. And um, I think she felt she had not had an opportunity to really live her life. So maybe a little bitter and, you know, but she was very strong. She passed when she was 106. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. She was just, she was resilient and strong. She had an instinct about what was right 
and what was good. I mean, her impeccable taste with watching uh, a film or, you know, she knew immediately. She couldn't tell you why, but she would say, pass on this, go, go to another, you know, this is not good or, or whatever. Uh, but the point is, I think that she finally had that reaction and her own breakdown because she recognized some elements of herself in what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mom, <laughs> uh, I was doing a, a little play in my theater school, you know, no, it was off, 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 off Broadway, hmm. you know, just short of being in New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> and so I finally convinced mom and dad to come and see me in, in this little play. And um, right afterwards, and I should say it was very well received. I had incredible reviews. And uh, my teacher put me on a scholarship. I mean, I mean, I was like, I had found my niche. It was so obvious this is where I belong. And wow, we're, we're talking after the show. And my mom grabs my father's arm and says, Lester, talk to your daughter. If you don't stop her now, she'll wind up doing this the rest of her life. Oh, wow. That's crazy. And I I just cracked up. I said, that's it, mom. That's it. You got it. That's it. That's what I want to do for the rest of my life. What was her objection to you doing that? What was her issue? Oh, I'm I'm sure uh, she meant well. I'm sure she was afraid I'd get kidnapped in the wilds of Manhattan or something. Who knows? I'm a, I mean, there was uh, that was one thing. There's no security in wanting to be an actor. Right. Yeah. I remember the first time I realized I was an actor was when I had traveled in my first job. I had toured for a year and therefore qualified for unemployment insurance. And I didn't have to do anything else but look for work (laughs) as an actor. And so I stood on the unemployment line thinking, oh, God, thank you. I'm an actor. And I thought, wait a minute. You're you're on the unemployment line and you realize that this is being an actor. You've arrived. <laughs> I couldn't, yeah, I've arrived. This couldn't be more honest. Yeah. So that was one thing. The other thing I believe was um, it was not what she planned for her kids. Uh, they should get married. They should have babies. And they should live about a block away so that she could have the babies. <laughs> uh, but this, you only know what you know. My mother's sphere of knowledge contained this scenario. Mm-hmm. Nowhere did she have me on stage singing. This did not come into the the uh, plan. You know, it was not a part of the equation. So what was the path that took you from that unemployment line to starring on one of the most iconic television shows of all time? Oh, you would need 17 hours. You know, <laughs> um, <laughs> the path was strewn with my mother's resilience and strength. I mean, her attitude about everything is what I've always had. I wasn't going to try to do something. I was going to do it. There's there's a difference. There's a remarkable difference with going out there saying, I'm going to try to do this, and I'm going out there to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no room for the concept of failure. I'm, I'm not saying you win every time. But every time you give 150%, you have won. And the fact that you don't get your result doesn't interfere with that success. Uh, Success or or getting the job, let's say, let's make that the ultimate. That's a byproduct to what you put out there to get it. Mm -hmm. And every time you go out there to get it, that is a score. You have scored. Yeah. 
And so as, as I went out, I scored each time. People at uh, auditions, you know, you're backstage, they call your name, you go out and you belt out your song or whatever. I couldn't wait to get out there. I mean, <laughs> my, my comrades are up chucking and they're fainting and they're so nervous. <laughs> I, I used it as a way to perform. I would go out there and like have a ball. You know, I was like, ah! I'd wail. You know. <laughs> might be the only chance you, uh, the opportunity to play that part. So you might as well there do you it. Go. Yeah. That's exactly mm-hmm. right. I'm now, I'm on a Broadway stage yep. and you better believe I'm going to use it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, it, well, we know attitude is everything. Your mindset makes things happen. I, I, I've proven that without wanting to prove it. I look at my, the pages of incidents and I see that the mindset brought out, and I'm not saying it's always good, uh, but your mindset produces what's going to happen, good or bad. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think if I had to narrow down, <laughs> if I had to narrow the path, it was strewn with that kind of belief and confidence. When I went to meet Gene and Larry and Bert, there was no script. There weren't even sides. There were no pages or nothing. They were looking at me. And they were meeting 200, 300 women, I don't know, but I went sort of on the tail end. Uh, Unbeknownst to me, 20th Century Fox and CBS both thought I was perfect for the role. I had, in retrospect, done a lot of work on CBS, almost exclusively on CBS. I had done a couple of gun smokes. I did a Hawaii Five-0. In fact, that's where I was when all the flap was going on for casting. It was when I came back. My agent called and he said, uh, did you see the movie MASH? I said, no. He said, wonderful. <laughs> well, okay, it doesn't matter. <laughs> he, said, he said, you have an appointment. They're going to do a series or they, they think they're going to do a series. They're going to want to do a pilot, whatever. He said, you're going to meet them tomorrow. You don't have to do anything. Just meet them. They, they, uh, oh, he was so cute. He was like Damon Runyon. So listen, kid. I was never <laughs> Loretta to him. Kid. I was kid. <laughs> And so he says, you go there, you just meet with them, you make nice, they like get to know you a little bit, that's all, that's it. There's nothing to read. And I thought, oh, well, gee, that's too bad. I used to love to read. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I met them. And um, what they did want, however, they wanted to look at uh, film. And get going back to 1969, 70, 71, that was the thing they did. They always asked to see film on you. So that they can sit there and watch the film and judge whether or not you would be correct uh, or you had it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Millie Gussie was the casting lady at Paramount. And she, uh, I had done a Mannix. That's when I met Mike. And she called me. She found out that I was going up for the role. She said, listen to my advice. They're going to ask you for film. You don't have any comedy film. Do not give them any film. Wow. I, I said, what, what, what? He, she said, let me tell you why. They have no imagination. Oh, okay. <laughs> she said, they're going to yeah. look at you at your, <laughs> she said, your repertoire, you're jumping off a bridge, you're shooting somebody, <laughs> you're getting shot, you're, you know, you're having a romance with a man. But I just, she said, there's nothing funny in any of the work you've done. Nothing, no comedy at all. Um. And so uh, she said, here's your philosophy right now. Rather you lose the job on your own account, when you look at them and say, I'm sorry, I don't have anything proper to show you, they're going to say, oh, no, we can, no. You're going to say, I'm sorry. 
is not a, an inch of comedy in my film work, and I don't want you to judge me by the films that I've done. So I'm not showing you any of that. I will read for you. I will test for you. I will not give you any film. Mm, great. Uh, she said, uh, she said, believe me, here, and it, it, she said, put it in your head. Lose the job on your own because you don't want to give them film rather than give them film and have them look at your work, which is wonderful, and say, yeah, but she's not funny. Mm. And they're going to go to the next. Yeah, don't, don't let them do that to you. You make that decision. It is your choice. Great advice. Yeah. Yeah, I know. She really gave me a lot of stamina. And so I call Damon Runyon, you know, I call him as, hi, it's the kid. You know, I said, hey, kid, they really like you. They want to see film. I said, no. <laughs> he said, excuse me. I said, no. And I, so I give him, you know, Millie's, Millie's advice. And yeah, what does she know? I said, no, I'll tell you, Fred, his name was Fred. I'm going to stick to this. I will not show them film. So uh, as luck would have it, I had an offer for a film with Olivia de Havilland, which for mm. me was like, I'd arrived. Wow. I got, I worshiped this woman. And the dates conflicted with the dates of the pilot. And so uh, out of courtesy, Damon Runyon calls Jean and says, um, we got an offer for the kid. She's going to do a movie with Olivia de Havilland, but I'm calling you to say you had her first. You got dibs, okay? If you still want her, you got to say so now or else I'm going to take the movie. And so uh, Jean said, we had just decided to go with Loretta. Good. Okay, fine. I'll tell her. (laughs) (laughs) He was, oh, he was quite a character. He really was a lovely, lovely man. Yeah. So was there, did you read for Jean or for anybody? Did you do that? No, never. No. But uh, they, I think they were also getting votes from CBS yeah. and uh, 20th Century Fox. I had done a um, the debut show of Glenn Ford's series, Cades County, which I don't think lasted more than a couple of seasons, but the, the, uh, the uh, first show was very well reviewed. Me, Darren McGavin, and Glenn. Uh, Glenn wouldn't like that position. But anyway, so uh, Glenn, Darren McGavin, and Loretta Swit. It was rather a good show. So, so Fox, Eddie Foy. Yep. Eddie Foy Jr. Or I think was he was it the, the third. I think he was, yeah. I think it was the third at that point. I think so. I think there's three of them. <laughs> he said, uh, uh, you know, he, he recommended me. And then uh, CBS, of course, the, the two casting people there had uh, seen me in all the CBS shows and they thought that I could do it, you know. And so that's how that happened to come about. Were you really, really, really enamored with the script and the, the idea? Was it something? There was you... no script. Oh, there was no, no script. script. Wow. No, there was nothing. <laughs> well, it was a pretty good way to get a job. <laughs> That's right. Hey, there's no script and you don't have to do anything. Show up Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the deal. I had seen Alan on Broadway in um, uh, Owl and the Pussycat. Yeah. And I had seen him in Apple Tree. And uh, this was a New York actor who knew what he was doing and, and, and he, a heavyweight actor. You know, yeah. So I thought, whoa, if he's saying he's going to do this series, this is going to be good. You know? Yeah, yeah. Wow. I didn't know anyone else, but I was told that Gary Berghoff, 
had been in the movie, which I never saw. So, uh, uh, but but I but I mean that obviously is a credit to going into a series. I didn't know Larry. I didn't know Wayne, who became my dearest, sweetest friend. And so I didn't know anybody else. Wow. <laughs> Now, what's exciting to hear about is your kind of your first day on MASH. This is a series that you are part of. You didn't you didn't audition per se. You'd never seen the movie. You could spell it, but that's as close as you were getting. You were you certainly were aware of Alan Alda and his history. Yeah, I mean, I knew who he was. To me, that he uh, he was a very talented actor whose work had um, integrity. So I figured if he was attaching himself to the show, it was going to be something that I would be proud of, you know. Yeah. He had that kind of uh, reputation for me. What was that first day like? What was right. that? The first day, first day was not on the set, though. The first day was sitting down, meeting everybody, and uh, we were in, I think, Gene's office. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> we were all just kind of talking away. And then Gene was center stage talking at one point, and and Wayne had been reading the Wall Street Journal or something, yeah, <laughs> as was as was his want. Yeah, he, he was always on the phone making deals, wasn't he? It was an amazing thing. <laughs> he really was an amazing character on his own. Just the delightful, bright, witty. Just I adored him. Anyway. Um, so well, Gene is now waxing, and Wayne hasn't yet put down the paper. <laughs> so Gene, Gene suddenly is aware of the fact that there's a, an actor <laughs> in, the, in the room who's not paying any attention to him. And, uh, and so, now we're talking so, about Gene Reynolds, who is the producer yes. of the show, and who was a very distinguished <laughs> child actor and very distinguished producer-director of many television shows. So this guy's a professional, <laughs> Mr. Reynolds. Also, look for him in The Country Girl. He played the, um, the stage manager telling everybody to be quiet. Uh, yeah. And he did that very well, of course. <laughs> he got a lot of practice, yeah. <laughs> so, but he was an adult when you say he's a child actor, and then he grew into uh, adult parts. But here's the thing. He looks over, and now he stops talking. And Wayne is still reading. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, Gene looks over at him, like, just like astonished. <laughs> he says, Wayne, and do you mind? <laughs> and, and Wayne looks up like he's come out of a dream. He, he was not aware that we were not all still talking to each other, you know. <laughs> so, and it did, you know, Gene sort of took center stage uh, like a segue, and it was, you know, not a big da 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 da. -da. Gene's now going to talk. So, uh, so Wayne was just oblivious to, to this. <laughs> and he looked up. He was. He said, "Oh," he said, "I am so terribly sorry." You know, he puts the paper down, and, uh, but it was. Um, uh, I remember so many things like it was yesterday because there was such electricity in the air sort of thing. It was just important. And I don't know. It was just – and uh, everybody was so much fun. <laughs> everybody yeah. was – Joking yeah. and kidding and stuff. It was a, a remarkable grouping of people that came together. Even then, you could yeah. tell there was a great deal of spirit. and Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. Absolutely, wow. you could. So then walk us through that a little bit. So that so you had that meeting and you all got to know each other. And, and then what happened? Uh, what? Well, a little bit. A little bit. I would say we got to know each other uh, shooting the pilot in uh, 
three degree temperature. It was so yeah, cold out oh, at the really? ranch. <laughs> everybody's nose was dripping and it was freezing, <laughs> little icicles, you know, dripping <laughs> yeah. from everybody's nose. And Wayne was like blue. And the boys had to wear their Hawaiian shirts, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. I had this theory that I passed along to Wayne, who adapted it and made it his own. You know, I said in an interview that we had to huddle together and hug each other and keep each other warm with our bodies. And I said, that's how we got so close. We got to know each other so well, because it's hard not to get to know somebody when you're cuddling and holding and hugging <laughs> you know, for hours at a time. You get to know them really well. Mm -hmm. And your <laughs> nose is dripping, too. That'll, that'll yeah, open up. Yes. Yeah. That'll bond you really quickly. He, I was scared. I mean, he was turning blue <laughs> from the cold. <laughs> Bless his heart. And when you saw the, uh, obviously, you saw the pilot, or you... You were seeing dailies. Uh, I, yeah, I go to, I'm a daily crazy. And dailies, just for anybody who doesn't know what that is, uh, you, you, scenes are shot and then the next day you can see those scenes that were shot that are, that are run for the cast and for the editing people and for the producers and so forth to see what's going on. So that's what a daily is. Does some actors avoid them. <laughs> they don't want them. Yeah. They don't like to see themselves on the screen. And because uh, it's very rough, you know, and you see all the flaws. It's not the colors not adjusted. I mean, it's just like that's what I meant when I, the, sometimes in the in the mess tent, my hair would like be green until they fixed the color because <laughs> everybody everything was fatigue green, mm -hmm. you know. Just uh, yeah. but uh, yeah, dailies are interesting. I think I regard them still like it's going. You're going to school, yeah, and learning. Well, why did that work, and why didn't it? You know. Sure. One of my favorite stories about the work and how important it was to all of us, I was going to dailies and I was walking a couple of steps behind Wayne and Alan and uh, they were discussing a scene they shot yesterday, the day before, you know, and they were analyzing it and working it. And so when I caught up to them, I was like fascinated because it was done. It was in the can and they were still working. <laughs> they were still working on the scene, you see. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I said, excuse me, gentlemen, if I may, are you both crazy? I mean, there's nothing you can do to fix. What, what are you doing to yourselves? You, you, know, you, gotta, you gotta let it go and move on. We're into the next episode. You know? And we all laughed, but it, it didn't matter. If you could learn from what you did from that scene, and apply it in a different way to the next moments or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then that applied to everybody in the show. It was so, there was such dedication to continue to do the best you could. It just, and, and, and it was very inspiring. You were surrounded by this kind of allegiance to the craft, allegiance to the work. And it was very exciting always to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. There was an ad that Alan never even saw. It's a big picture of a leg that's in a cast. And we signed it. The cast signed the cast. And the script was, all we wanted to do was break a leg. <laughs> the rest is history. <laughs> Isn't that a great ad? That's great. That's great ad. I, I uh, have it on my table when I do shows, you know, autograph shows, because it's so succinct. It's so 
it so nails it. Hmm. That's all we wanted to do. We wanted to do the best work we could and, you know, break a leg is the expression. Right. And the byproduct is running in marathons over 40 years later hmm. and is still high on the charts and you're, we're still getting mail from people who began watching when they were 11. There you go. That is part one of our conversation with the lovely and talented Loretta Swit. And, you know, uh, Jeff, uh, very similar to <laughs> when you and I got to talk to uh, Kelly Nakahara, mm-hmm. I just got wrapped up in listening to old friends talk. <laughs> So well, I, don't, uh, yeah. I don't say a lot. Because <laughs> I just sit back and listen and think, oh, man, I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> hey, I was enjoying it, too. I didn't try and say a lot either, because when you have a, a guest uh, and, a, and an amazing person like Loretta Swit on, why should you talk? Let Loretta say what she's going to say, because she's going to say a lot of wonderful things. And she did. She's a wonderful person. And what a joy to listen to and what great information she has. Yes. Yeah. That was spectacular. If you thought part one was good, just wait, because part two is going to have some great stuff. She's going to talk about the uh, evolution of Margaret Houlihan, and she's going to be talking about how she feels about being a role model and her relationship with Larry Linville. You, you know, she's going to talk about uh, when McLean and uh, Wayne Rogers left and Harry Morgan and Mike Farrell came in, what that transition was like. And I'm looking forward to this again. Uh, she's going to give us all an acting lesson. Yes. And there are some who have said I could use one. So it's it's going to be great. I didn't mean it when I said that. You know that, well, right? Well, I mean, I, for gosh sakes, I mean, you said it. I, it's all, But it's okay because she gives me a great acting lesson and we're all going to hear it. So this is we're all going to be Marlon Brando. Early after. Marlon Brando, not not weird Early. late Marlon Brando. Oh, no, right? no, no, not, no. Not, not, not fat Brando, no. skinny Brando. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) Hey, also, uh, you know, she talked about her book and uh, we want to make sure that you have the link to buy that book. You can buy an autographed copy of her book, Switheart, The Watercolor Artistry and Animal Activism of Loretta Swit. The link is in our show notes at mashmatterspodcast.com. Just click on that, then go to the episodes page and uh, click on the show notes for this episode. And you'll see some other cool stories about Loretta and other things on there. And you'll see how to get in touch with us. You can always get in touch with us through our website. You can also call and leave a voicemail just like Justin did uh, at 513-436-4077. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. And please listen, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast player and and leave us a five-star review as well. So, Hey, Jeff, uh, great episode. Hey, great episode. And Justin, thanks again for that great idea. If you have any more great ideas, let us know. Hey, that one worked out. That's right. Don't be a stranger, Justin. (laughs) All right. We will continue this conversation in part two with Loretta Swit here on MASH Matters. Until then, here's looking up your old address. (laughs) 